Hi, this is Amanda Dolan, and welcome to The Mental Society. Today, we are joined by Dr. Neil Berliner. Dr. Berliner is an American comedy writer, stand-up comedian, comedy producer, and instructor. He began his professional career with The Howard Stern Show, writing for several roasts, and the rap lyrics for the frequent show guest, Fruity Nutcake Rappin' Gram- Granny, an elderly hip-hop artist. Neil then continued on to Comedy Central and the New York Friars Club, where he wrote the roast of William Shatner, Flavor Flav, Pat Cooper, and Matt Lauer. In 2013, Neil was invited to write for Mad Magazine, uh, which is America's top humor publication. His comedy material has also appeared in the New York Times, The View, on VH1, the New York Daily News, the New York Post, page six, the Village Voice, and a lot more, as if that wasn't enough. Um, And um, he is one of the most requested joke writers, um, joke writing instructors in the United States. He has presented his Anatomy of a One-Liner seminar at the World Series of Comedy and the People's Improv Theater, instructed thousands of comedians um, at every level. Neil has performed stand-up comedy in many clubs and theaters throughout New York and Florida. And in 2022, you were named the Comedy Writer-in-Residence for the Comedy Cures Foundation. And that charity organization has done events for patients and caregivers on four continents over the last 20 years and is supported by Jerry Seinfeld's foundation and many other top names in comedy. And if that wasn't enough, you are also a doctor. Um, with a, um, you're the medical director of a large mental health agency in Brooklyn. That is a whole lot of comedy and fun that you have experienced. In your I'm life. exhausted just hearing that. Tell you it truth. sounds like a lot. I mean, it is a lot. I, wow. That's sometimes What's when you hear it all. Time over the years to, um, to, yeah. to get well, that list going. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, isn't that? Well, it, it started in 99, right? With Howard Stern. Is that where you're comedian? Yeah, that's when I got my start in comedy. I was lucky enough to get a call from the Howard Stern show after I had written for this character, an elderly woman named Fruity Nutcake Rappin' Granny. And, if, uh, if you're listening and you haven't checked her out, you must. She is hilarious. Like, yes, check her out. Yeah, she's all over YouTube and all those places. And uh so we were lucky that she got to do 10 or 15 appearances on the Stern show. And I did a little stuff with the Stern show. I wrote for some roasts for that show and got friendly with uh, comedian Artie Lang, who helped me a lot. And uh, one thing led to another, you know, it was like a lattice where you go from thing to thing, you know, started with the Stern yeah. show, then on to Comedy Central roast and the Friars Club, and Mad Magazine and teaching comedy. And so, you know, it's been fun, been fun. So the very few comedians that I know personally have talked to me a lot about like how hard it is just to get started um, because it feels like for every hundred times you audition or go to a, you know, open mic night, there's only one time or two times that feels successful um, or gets you somewhere. Is How true is that you think that success is hard to come by? It's a very difficult business to be in. The the success rate is very low to become, you know, famous. Mm-hmm. But things have changed a lot with social media and 
I think if young comedians prepare themselves, uh, if they're well versed at social media like TikTok and YouTube and all those things, uh, it gives you a much better chance to become successful. So you can have a lot of good material, but if you don't know how to navigate social media, right, no one's going to know about it. So it's really a big part of every comedian's day these days. Every working comedian spends a good amount of time on the computer doing their social media, aside from writing material and performing material and traveling. So that's what the job come for the vast majority of comedians. Well, and I know that um, I, Steve Hofstetter is a comedian that I have enjoyed for a while. And I know that during the pandemic, he created essentially a virtual comedy club for um, one for comedians so that they could continue to work um, and be in front of live Zoom audiences. But um, I think, you know, also if he talked about it being good for him because it gave him something to have a purpose to do. Um, well, I know Steve from New York, actually. I've met him and uh, good guy and funny. And yeah, I mean, you bring up a good point that during the pandemic, everybody was isolated. I mean, mm-hmm. all entertainment stopped, essentially, you know. And we had to look for new ways to communicate, get out there with the public. And Zoom was a big, Zoom and other similar mm-hmm. apps were a big part of that. And now it's become a part, you know, a permanent part of entertainment. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and it's, um, in fact, like, to go back to Steve Hofstetter, he created a weekly comedy show that with a comedian in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went to that for a long while um, until my schedule changed, but there's a Facebook community around that show and people have become friends through comedy, like through connecting. Um, and I think that comedy, just like other forms of art, um, sure. you connect with people that have similar likes. You know, like I'll, there are certain comedians that I are not my cup of tea. And then there's others. And I think that when you find those others, the ones that you connect with, you kind of find your people because you find the same yeah. thing funny. Oh, yeah. There's a tremendous range of comedians out there. And there's some somebody for everybody, you know. Um, and- but you'd be surprised, you know, there's a lot of um, cross-pollination too. You know, people you wouldn't think would come to your shows might come to your show. And comedians you might not think are your cup of tea if you listen to them. You know, basically funny is funny. So it is sometimes giving a different kind of comedian a chance is, is a good thing. You know, it's like any variety, you know, yeah. like you like music, you like you have the bands that you like. And oh, and yeah. talking about music, I was with someone and I just put my entire library um, on shuffle. And I went from Fish to um, Randy Carlisle to Tesla and then there was a Beethoven's concerto like I mean those were I was like okay I have a well-rounded music taste um and you so go back to a little to comedy and kind of how you work you help comedians write jokes and maybe even find themselves like as who they are as a comedian but yeah a good way of putting it because 
it's really a two prong, at least two prong kind of process that I do and a lot of other comedy instructors do. You know, we deal with material and we mm -hmm. also deal with persona. So comedians sometimes, especially younger comedians, um, have this issue of finding their persona and, uh, and the way they're going to deliver things and present their material. And then there's the material end of it. And it takes both. You know, it takes both. Right. I mean, the, the best stand-up comedians are actors, basically. If you think of everyone who's gotten a sitcom, mm -hmm. they're among the best actors. They were chosen. They were were cho chosen randomly. They were chosen no. some potential to act. You know, and stand-up com comedy is a big part of it is acting. It's timing and facial expression, body movement, etc. And I think it's also a quick-wittedness and an ability to pivot in the the face of hecklers. Oh yeah, you know, crowd work and hecklers have to be dealt with. You know, it's something that's part of the uh, part of and, the game. And with so with a you know a heckler at a live comedy show, you can you know ignore them or you can call them out. And often when you call them out, you're doing that in front of a whole bunch of people that they don't want the heckler saying anything either because they're enjoying the show. You talked about social media, so. When people heckle on social media, it maybe looks a little different, um, but it can be really anonymous. And there's not that interplay that like crowd work would have. So how can that impact a comedian's growth if they feel, I don't know, that the people that they're trying to reach don't like what they're putting out there? Well, if enough people don't like what you're putting out there, then you shouldn't be a comedian. You come to that realization after a while, you know. But if it's just a heckler here and there, then, as you say, the audience is on the side of the comedian, not the heckler, essentially. So and whether it's Zoom or live or whatever it is, you know, as you said, people want to hear the show. So there's an there's an immediate alignment of the audience with the performer versus versus the heckler. So like working in um, psychology and as a psychiatrist um, and, and in my own experience, community has been a really important part of my healing process. So when you think about like your patients, even like with comedians that have a following and a group of people, how important is that community just for our own mental health and healing? Which community are you talking about? Any community. Like, just to be part of a community, how important do you feel? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, community is the opposite of isolation. So just to be a part of something is very important for people, you know. And again, it, it's, it became exaggerated when COVID hit because yeah. the isolation part outweighed the community part. If you think about any community you, you were in, mm -hmm. whether work or, you know, parents groups or, you know, people you play tennis with or whatever it is, or comedy. And, you know, comedians are a community too. So right. we lost our community basically. So what Steve did was a very good thing. You know, other comedians have done similar things, you know, online. So uh, yeah, to emphasize community is, is very important, especially, especially these days. Absolutely. So I'm going to sneak in. I, when I was doing research on you, I read about the schmuck chair. And right. Yeah. Do you share, like, take a minute to talk about what the schmuck chair is? You'll yeah, like well, it. the schmuck chair is, a, okay, it's a chair. And it usually refers to, it started uh, when 
my wife would take me shopping to clothing stores, women's clothing stores, usually on a Sunday when I want to watch a game of some kind on TV. And I would have to hold her pocketbook outside the dressing room of the of the women's clothing store and hold all the clothes that she was thinking about buying. And, you know, goes on for half an hour, 45 minutes, and just sitting there, and, you know, with a forlorn look on your face. So we started taking pictures of me in these different chairs in different stores. And <laughs> my friend, Elaine Boozler, do you know her famous comedian, yes. Boozler? We went to the same high school, actually in Brooklyn and she started talking about the schmuck chair in her act sometimes. And Elaine always gives credit to the comedian that she, you know, uses, if she uses the material. And I started getting phone calls from people who knew me saying, Elaine Boozler said something about you in a chair or something, some kind of schmuck chair or something. So got to give a, uh, you know, shout out to Elaine, always giving credit. Yeah. Well, I, I read that last week and then this weekend, I never, I've always thought, you know, like my ex-husband would sit with me or, you know, even my kids sometimes would be stuck sitting in that chair outside the dressing room. And I never really thought much about it because it was always me on the other side. But this weekend I went with um, my partner and his two sons to a comic book and sports card store. And I sat on the, um, I, I don't know, I, I don't know if I'm a schmuck, but the, the schmuck stool in the corner, it wasn't even a comfy chair. It was like a bar stool. <laughs> from, right, right. Um, and I was like, oh, this must be what it feels like to sit here for an hour while they look at all of these things that I'm not interested in at all. Exactly. So, so that's what it comes down to. Being stuck somewhere you don't want to be with, a, with another person doing something they want to do. And, and it's with someone that, that you care about, typically. Right. So, you know, some husbands don't go shopping with their wives at all. And some, I guess, what you know, wives don't go shopping shopping with their husbands for stuff. But, uh, you know, I'd rather be with my wife. And uh, I don't mind sitting in the chair for a while, you know. And I think, you know, it can go back to that connection and community as well. Like, even, I mean, whether it's with your wife that you're just present with her during that time. Or maybe like there's a couple other husbands at the other chairs and you all just get to be miserable. I don't know if that's the right word <laughs> together. Just well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, Amanda, there's usually one chair only. So it's the, <laughs> the other husbands are stuck being even more pissed off because they got to stand and hold the stuff while the other guy is sitting. So I guess I'm less miserable if I get the chair than if I have to stand. <laughs> and, well, <laughs> And then maybe that could, we can go back to our kindergarten days of sharing and, you know, taking turns in the chair. Right. So and it, and it, it reminds me of in a way of musical chairs, right? Yes. Yeah. If, if you're the schmuck who's stuck, who doesn't get a chair, then you're, you're unhappy, I guess. More yeah. unhappy than the guy sitting. Yes. Um, but I think, you know, it's, I don't there's also something about that being stuck in a place that doesn't always feel great. Like no one wants to be stuck on the chair waiting for someone. And I think sometimes we get stuck when we're trying to grow as a person, whether that's heal our mental health or grow in our career. And so working with comedians as they are developing their career, how does like, how does their mental health and mental well-being impact their personal and professional growth? 
Well, you know, it's possibly a chicken or egg argument for some people because some people in comedy are in comedy in the first place because they're trying to work out their issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, p- comedians look at things differently. And, you know, a lot of people who are depressed look at things differently you know, through a certain perspective. So, you know, there's a balance there. And comedy and the performing arts in general are not uh, direct or straight career paths. You don't know what's going to happen when you become, when you decide that performing arts is going to be your career goal. So for instance, I became a doctor. I knew when I went to med school that if I didn't flunk out, I would wind up being a doctor. You know, it's like a linear kind of path. Exactly. Yeah. When you go into the performing arts, you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, all the famous people we know about didn't know that they were going to be famous. They wanted to be famous. And for every famous person we know about, there are, you know, 10,000 people who who try to do the same thing and are not famous. And uh, I think sometimes you find that fame far later in life than you expected. Like you just show up at the right place at the right time. Right. Like a good, good example that just popped into my mind when you said that was a guy like Brian Cranston from Breaking Bad. Yes. I'm not a comedian, but, you know, he was an actor all his life, a fantastic actor. Also, um, you know, Captain Picard from Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm blocking on his name, but uh, Patrick Stewart. Yes. I shouldn't block on his name. I met him. He's a great guy. But anyway, you know, he was an actor and he mm-hmm. was a Shakespearean actor. And then all of a sudden he's famous on Star Trek and his fame, you know, <laughs> skyrocketed, so to speak, right? Yeah. Um, so, and so those are two examples of people who they spent their whole lives doing what they wanted to do. So that's the key, I think. If you're going to go into the performing arts, you, you really can't do it for money because the money is, it's very unlikely that you're going to make a lot of money going into the performing arts. It's always been that way. And it's still that way. If you hit it in comedy, though, you, if you hit it big, then you hit it really big, though. Yeah. I mean, the top comedians, the Jim Gaffigans and Dave Chappelle's of the world, you know, they're making double digit million dollars every single year. Or Jerry Springer, who, you know, had, you know, this amazing show and produced and wrote and all the things made a lot of money. I know that, you know, he has a foundation now, but you don't see him in a lot of shows. Like I remember when I was growing up, that might also be because I don't have live TV and I watch streaming services that are exactly what I want to watch. Right, right. But um it does it's it it's almost seems like you work really, really hard and then there's a huge payoff or there's not much of one at all. Right. But you know what? The payoff can be not economic too. Because I know I know a lot of comedians who will never be famous and they have a great time. They like the life. They like traveling. They like being on cruise ships. They like the friends they make. They like the they just like the lifestyle. So money is only one part of a lifestyle. So well, and you know money and fame are two aspects of a lifestyle in show business. And I think money and fame are two different things as well. Right. I'm saying they're just two aspects of a show business life, let's say. So there are plenty of people in show business who have every other aspect of that life. They have the other advantages of show business, mm-hmm. just don't happen to be famous or be or or are rich. But they're right. rich in other ways. And, you know, th- you can be famous or infamous and not have money. And 
And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's good. It doesn't and you can be famous that. and not be happy too. Just exactly. be, and you can be rich and famous and not be happy too. So, well, and you know, I think that, but you know, to bring kind of back around to mental health, you know, a comedian like Robin Williams, who, you know, he was dealing with maybe a mental illness. I know that there was other illnesses going on as well. But all of us, maybe not all of us, but most of us thought of Robin Williams as this happy, funny man who has everything, everyone liked him, right? And then he commits suicide. And for many people, myself included, thought, but why? Like, you've got it all, so why because your perception of him having it all is not really him having it all right it's your perception of him having it all and it's not the same thing right oh and i think you know almost exactly a year ago um a good friend of mine's husband committed suicide and uh he was one of those guys that you would on the surface never think that that he would um because he was always happy and had a smile on his face. And and so I think that that can be something that's really insidious with mental illness is that we don't see it the way that we see cancer or a broken arm. Right. Um, it's, it's just, well, just as you didn't see it with Robin Williams, we didn't, you didn't see it with your cousin. Right. And, and for myself, I, I did not attempt suicide. I planned my suicide, but like down to, like the minute, almost like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write these letters. I'm going to go to this place. I'm going to make this call. So, um, and I've talked to people who they were like, I didn't know. Like, I had no idea. Like you had all of your stuff together. You had, I mean, at the time I had two young kids who were in school. I was married. We had the three bedroom house and the two car garage and the three dogs. And I was the president of the PTA. Like I had all the the things. And yet, you know, under the surface, I just was miserable. Yeah. Um, and so I think comedians can do a really good job at covering up the pain with the jokes. Yes. And, um, did you say you love that about it, or I said no doubt about that. Oh, no doubt about that. Yeah, and well, it doesn't and, apply to everybody, but well, no, no, no. Comedians are part of the general population, and the general population has a twenty percent incidence of depression. So there's a twenty percent incidence lifetime mm-hmm. of depression in the general population, world, you know, worldwide. So twenty percent of comedians are not immune to that. They're part of that, and the likelihood that a comedian is impacted by a mental illness. And by that, I mean someone that they care about has a mental illness. And in fact, it's probably more than 20% for comedians thinking about it because comedians are more introspective. They look at the world. They look at what's wrong with the world. Mm-hmm. So aside from the things that might depress them about themselves, they, I think comedians are more prone to be depressed about the world in general, the state of the world. So I think that because they just they're just looking at we're looking at everything all the time and, you know, we're looking at different ways to to present situations and that brings up negative stuff very often. So so, I mean, no, but I mean, even if 
I, you know, because I feel like a lot of comedians, maybe all comedians, their jokes are based in their own reality, right? Like the, if you write a joke about your family, it might not be a hundred percent exactly the story that happened in your family, but there's a lot of truth. In well, that. I would differ. I would beg to differ with you there because, you know, the writers I know and myself, we can write for situations that aren't our own situations. So we, that's part of the ability to write comedy. I think to be able to put yourself into a situation that's not your own reality and you could, but you can imagine that reality. Right. That's how you can write funny stuff about it. Like I'm doing a project now, you know, doesn't matter what project, but I, I have to put myself in a different perspective, a perspective of a different person than me. And I can do that. So I think most people who write comedy can do that, you know, so it, it's not, you know, a lot of, a lot of comedy is self examination, like you suggested, but, it doesn't have to, I don't think it really has to be. But like you said, when you do that, try to put yourself in someone else's place or in a different um, situation than is your normal, that's when that like maybe not so great view of the world can pop up because you're looking yeah, at all the, the ick. Yeah, but all the, yeah, but the character also could be a very optimistic character too and just see things you know, in an optimistic way. So I think to be a decent comedy writer, you have to be able to put yourself into different personas and write as if you're that person, you know, that character. Yeah. And, you know, I interviewed someone recently who he wears costumes. He's a cosplayer and wearing a costume and being someone else was part of his healing journey. So is that the same with comedy writers that like kind of, being someone else, whether it's on a show or writing, is that kind of a fake it till you make it sort of? Well, I think that's very true of acting in general. You know, acting is you know, pretending you're somebody else, essentially. That's what it is. It's, pre- it's all pretend. <laughs> and is life all pretend? <laughs> you know, we could get into that. Those, But that's it. Yeah, that makes sense that there's a um, pretending to be someone else so you can escape your situation well it's pretending to be your someone else for the job so it's very you know people have different motivations for the job there are like we said there are some people mm-hmm. who are dealing with their own issues and want to be somebody else for a particular reason but then there are people who just want to be actors or actresses and you know for whatever reasons they're willing to do it and and they learn to do it and that's that so i think there are different motivations for different people it really depends. But but acting is being somebody somebody you're not. That's what it is. Yeah. You're not, when you're an actor, you're not playing yourself. You're playing somebody else. So that's what acting, when you come right down to it, that's what it is. For and, whatever from what for whatever the motivations are. And and I enjoy when I get to just pretend a little bit to be someone else. Like when for me, um when I get spam calls. Specifically, like the ones, I, well, the, whatever. I will drag those people on and just act yeah, like I'm goof on them. Yeah, you'll goof on them and have fun. Because sometimes that's sometimes my job is stressful, and I have two teenagers, and I love them, but I have two teenagers, um, and 
they can be exhausting. And so sometimes it's fun to just act like an idiot and mess with someone just because. Um, well, everybody likes escapism sometimes. Yes. It's and stressful. Life is stressful. To be yourself all the time, I guess, is stressful sometimes. So and, it's fun to you know, come yeah. out of that out of that persona and and just yeah to be on all the time as i think that a lot of us are now with like with social media we put so much of ourselves out into the world that and maybe you know i think a lot of social media is people playing a role right like you know there's your social media persona and then who you really are oh of course and and, you know, I, I will say this over and over again. Oftentimes social media is like you are comparing your life to someone else's highlight reel. Like when you look at someone's social media, they're only posting the good stuff. Yeah. No and one's the worst persona on social media. And and, and then I know that myself for myself, when I like if I am seeing someone complain and it's over and over and over again, like, this is terrible. I don't want to hear that. Like, I really do want the highlights because that brings me some joy. I'm also have begun to very well curate my social media and unfollowing things that don't serve me well. And that's a way that I've protected my mental health. Um, so, uh, before we go, like I'm curious about this comedy and writer, comedy writer in residence with the Comedy Cures Foundation. Can you share a little bit more about what that oh sure absolutely. You get to do for that. Yeah, so um, I know a woman who's a comedian. Her name is Saren Rothberg, and she's a stage four cancer survivor from about 20 years ago. She had cancer, and she was a comedian, and she decided that she wanted to make the lives of patients and caregivers happier and she started a big well it wasn't big when she started but she started a foundation called comedy cures and it brings events comedy events to caregivers and patients all over the world i think on four or five continents for the past 20 years hundreds of events and a lot of the big comedians support it you mentioned the jerry seinfeld Founda family foundation and dave attell and chris robinson just keith robinson and I think Wanda Sykes and many, many famous comedians have supported Comedy Cures and I am their comedy writer in residence. So I do various projects for them. Like we have every day, we put up a weird holiday jokes. I wrote, I write most of those and and we do a writer's room. Uh, I started a, a writer's room of very, very high-end, talented comedy writers from all over the country. And we pick a topic every month to write jokes about and we brainstorm it as if we're in the writer's room of like a late night talk show. Mm -hmm. And then we get those jokes out to the, uh, to the public. So that's been gratifying, you know, trying to give something back. Yeah, and, and then, I'm sorry. No, go, no, finish what you were. Yeah, they do research studies and yeah, Saren's very devoted to this and it's grown to a very big organization, actually. I was going to say as um, the daughter of someone who had cancer and he, my father died 20, four years ago. Um, but entertainment and ways to escape, like whether it was comedy or, you know, there was a player piano in the cancer 
wing of the hospital that my dad was in a lot. And it was so much fun to go in this room with a player piano. Yeah. Um, and so I appreciate that, that like you are part of a group that provides that escape from, quite frankly, the fear of the reality of cancer. Yeah. Um, because there is a lot of unknown there. And humor. Well, I thought it was a good way to combine my medical training and my comedy background. It's like a perfect marriage, mm -hmm. perfect mix. So do you use comedy with your patients too? Or does it just depend on the patient and how they... Yeah, it depends on the situation. depends on the uh, how high-functioning the patient is. Uh, humor can be used in medicine um, to get across a an idea that you want the patient to understand, let's say, or agree with, um, you know, it's communication. It's part of communication. You Basically, doctors are trying to sell to a patient their idea. You know, you have an idea about what you think is good for a patient, let's say. So you have to pitch that idea to the patient. It's, you know, the days are gone where, where a doctor would say, all right, you're taking this medicine, get out of here, here's, here's the medicine, goodbye. Right. Yeah, well, and, it and it really never should have been that way, actually. So now we have patients who are very educated and, um, you know, they, they're involved in their healthcare. It's a two-way street. So the physician has to, and anybody in healthcare has to um, convince the person on the other side of the desk or table mm -hmm. to do something, you know, like either, you know, agree with uh, a medication you want to prescribe or take a suggestion in psychotherapy or get the operation or don't get the operation, whatever it is, you know? Right. I think utilizing humor, uh, it's basically a, like a sales technique. And I think it's good in any kind of interaction when you're trying to convince anybody of anything, you know, to utilize humor. Lighten the mood. And, right. and, and okay. I think it, it lightens the mood. It makes lightens the mood. It makes people more amenable to, you know, it, it makes a connection. That makes people more amenable to suggestion, I think. And it's laughter, does like laughter, does that impact our mood? Like the levels of hormones that like- Definitely. Well, neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine, feel good chemicals basically. Right. You know, increase for whatever reason, increase when people laugh. So- So laughter, if you're making a difficult decision in a doctor's office and you're getting the opportunity to- have a little less stress, right? Like those more dopamine yeah. feel better and you might be more open to hearing that suggestion. Yeah. Even yesterday I was in an office um, with my wife, a gastroenterologist's office, and this guy had fantastic reviews. And when we met with him, he was funny. And I don't remember exactly what he said, but, you know, he had some humorous things in his, in his dialogue. Mm -hmm. And it just made me more, it made me like the guy more and wanted to agree with what he was going to do. And, you know, just perfect example of what I just said. Mm -hmm. It just happened to me yesterday. Well, and, and I think too, no offense to you as a doctor, but a lot of doctors have terrible bedside manner and you don't feel connected to your doctor. So it makes you not believe them, not want to listen to them, feel right. you're not heard. And so, um, Sounds like humor can, like you said, create that connection and that relationship. So whether it's for mental health treatment or 
you know, something going on with your stomach. Right. You're more likely to follow through. Right. Well, terrible bedside manner is essentially saying poor communication. You know, the guy doesn't or the woman doesn't level with me or not. Oh, is not open to my ideas. Right. A dictator, let's say somebody who just dictates what you should do. Is there the doctor and you're the patient, something like that. That's really what bad bedside manner is. So, yes, utilizing humor opens up the communication. You know, it makes the person more of a human being, I think. And it makes you more amenable to suggestion from that, from that person. And it and then it, it leads to collaboration instead of that. Right. Right. It makes it a dialogue rather than a monologue. Exactly. And, it makes it a two-way street. And as a patient and then as a doctor, if that patient is more likely to follow through on their care because they have that dialogue and they understand the why or if it's a lifestyle change, hey, doc, that's not going to work for me, but let's explore other ways. Patients are likely to be more compliant with right. their care. We don't call it compliance anymore, by the way. We oh. call it adherence. Adherence. Sorry. Okay. But, you know what? but it's very, very important to uh, to stress that, that, uh, you know, suggestions from doctors are not taken by most patients in general. Like I once saw a study where I would talk about this in some talks I used to do for pharmaceutical companies. When a doctor writes a prescription, only about one third of the prescriptions really uh, go toward uh, complete adherence, okay? Because people don't fill the prescription or they fill it or they take the medicine wrong or they fill it and they don't take it for whatever reason or they don't take it long enough. So there's lots of barriers to 100% adherence with prescriptions. Okay. But if you communicate better, then right. the goes all the way up. It goes all the way up. Like yesterday, like the doctor's office we were in, it was a very well-run office. So at the end of the visit, we were given like papers, like you got to get this lab study or you got to take this medicine. And here's, here's what you got to do. You know, very mm-hmm. instructions. And they brought us into a, a room with nobody else. It wasn't like out in the waiting. It wasn't like out in the, in the lobby, right. where you, you know, so it, the way you give instructions or, you know, give suggestions to patients is very important, the manner in which you do it. So it's all part, plays into adherence. And so for me as an individual living with bipolar, I have come to the conclusion that I will take medication for the rest of my life on some, you know, unless there's a miracle cure for bipolar all of a sudden, which that would be amazing. Um, And I am, I get made fun of because I'm like the old lady with the little pill container sits by my bed to make sure that I know I've taken my medicine. Um, and I know I'm better for that. Mm-hmm. So it's not like to wrap things up. It just sounds like comedy makes life better. I think it does. And it builds. A lot of people do because it's so popular, you know, it's, it's so popular. You turn on Netflix and, at least a third of what you see is comedy, right? Yeah, and then a third is true crime, which is where I <laughs> I land. I uh, find true crime relaxing. Other people find comedy relaxing. I don't know. Um, so then I, I would encourage people to go out and find something that makes you laugh, release some of that dopamine and serotonin, and find a community because uh, community is good for our mental health. Um, is there anything else you want to add before we end today? The only thing I would like to add is that 
I have a new book out actually, and oh. it's called Ha Ha History. It's on Amazon, and it hit number one actually for new joke books on Amazon in January. And just very briefly, it's a book that goes from January 1st to December 31st. And we do a joke. I co-wrote it with three friends of mine. We do a joke for every day of the year from history, from the beginning of recorded time. So. Uh, oh, that sounds fantastic. I will make sure that I link that in the show notes okay. so that yeah. people can get to it on Amazon. But it's ha ha history. Yeah. Three separate words. Ha ha history. I love that. Awesome. Well, Neil, thank you so much for being here with oh, me. Thanks, man. It was a very interesting conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, I appreciate your time. Um, and awesome. Thanks will, a lot. I will link that book below. And also you can find out more about Neil and his comedy at neilberlinercomedy.com, which also will be linked below. Um, and again, thank you for joining me. Uh, and thank you for listening and learning more about mental health um, and how mental health and society meet. Now go out and open up a conversation find someone that likes the same comedy you do and discover how mental health is experienced in your world. You can find more episodes of the mental society and all the places you find your favorite podcast. And don't forget to subscribe. Um, and also you can find additional resources and articles by, vis by visiting our website, thementalsociety.com. And remember that you are not alone, that um, hope and help are all around you. And until next time, this is Amanda Dolan wishing you good health mental and otherwise.